Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. Julie, do you believe in hell? <sighs> I didn't know you were going to ask me that. Well, you know, that's, that's kind of what this episode is, is about, about belief in hell, the problems mm-hmm. of hell, why, where this idea comes from, and why it's problematic at times, or, or, pro, or often problematic in our culture. So I thought we'd, we'd kick it off by just talking about our own sort of viewpoints. Is yeah, it, and just there's a big loaded question. What, do, you think, <laughs> do you think I believe in hell? I don't think you do. I don't. You seem like a, a non-believer when it comes to, especially to uh, a place where demons torment souls for all eternity and that sort of thing. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I love it. I love the imagery, but no. I mean, I'm going to go out there and say it seems a little silly to me at times. So, well, silly in the best of circumstances. It's, it's well, not meant discuss, to. You know? It's not meant to. No. But... Um, it's just such a caricature of humans in a way. Yeah. Um, our, our worst thoughts that it's rendered to me in this way that seems kind of silly. And of course, I've seen so much devil imagery and Satan imagery. And of late, it seems like Satan has been kind of a silly figure in some modern works. Well, he, he certainly can be. Yeah. I mean, in, in, you know, comedy and hell go way back. Um, and we've recently been doing a lot of research about this. And some of, like, the earliest models of hell that we encounter, um, you know, in ancient Mesopotamian mythology, you encounter comedic stories even then. Mm-hmm. Uh, stories that, that we, we think were more about, uh, uh, about being a little uh, loose with the material and then having a little fun with the material with individuals going and having adventures in, in, the, in the afterlife in some sort of underworld. So... The idea of hell ranges from yeah, from silly to grotesque. Mm-hmm. Um, for my own part, when, when I think about hell as is uh, the idea that there is a place where bad people are are tormented for all eternity or even for a finite amount of time, mm-hmm. uh, I, I tend to find that a difficult thing to believe in. And uh, and, it, and you know, in this world, it takes a certain amount of mental power to believe in anything. And I feel like that's something that I, I don't want to focus that energy on. There, there are far more positive things outside of our experience that one can put faith into uh, without thinking about uh, where hell is, who's going into it, and how long they're going to be there. That being said, I've always found the idea just richly fascinating. And, uh, and, and certainly hell is just this fantastic place in, in, hu- in the history of human art, human uh, writing, fiction, philosophy we keep coming back to it we can't help but but visit it over and over again despite all of the the, the cro- grotesque ideas that fill it and uh, and sometimes the grotesque beliefs that prop it up well uh i'm sure you guys have all guessed we're going to be talking about hell today um in fact we've got another episode coming out about the science of hell and i do think that it's one of those things that has gone by the wayside in terms at least I, that from my perspective that people really feel invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we'll discuss later, it actually is a belief that a lot of people hold, uh, regardless of, of this idea that it went, um, you know, or according to The Economist in the article in Everlasting Hell, that theologically it's gone by the wayside because even the Vatican's sort of on the fence about it. Um, and in that article it says, you know, the devils and pitchforks, the brimstone clouds and wailing souls have been cleared away rather as a mad Aunt might be shut up in an attic. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, that being said, it's still this idea that that's pervasive. And in fact, no matter where you stand on the issue, you have to admit that it's actually died into the fabric of our existence, that it is um, sort of creating some of the rules that we, we play by as humans, right, mm-hmm. at least in the West and certain cultures. And I mean, just look at sort of a jail. Yeah. This is a good example of a concrete uh, idea of the abstract hell that we think of and that has been told to us thousands of years now in various forms. Yeah, uh, conceptions of hell are, you know, are just go side by side with uh, with our ideas about what, uh, what what should happen to criminals and wrongdoers in the real world. To what extent is it is it punishment? To what extent are they being shuffled away? To what extent are they being uh, uh, are they going to be saved and turned back into proper citizen? I mean, there are some models uh, even um, in the in the history of Christianity mm-hmm. uh, that saw uh, there there would be a day when even the devil would be saved and brought back into God. I mean, there. Um, so when you start looking at the history of hell, you see all these different takes on it, all these different ways that we make we make sense of it. Um, one way that I, w- I was thinking about it recently is um, it, it's been proposed that uh, that language is the operating system. Uh, you know, for the human mind, mm-hmm. that we we have this brain, we have to put language in it to deal with a lot of these higher concepts, right? And then you might consider religion a data management program uh, that we install to provide us with a certain uh, worldview of reality. Okay, um, it's an optional install, and you may install another worldview software. You may install multiple ones and do kind of like uh, that thing on Mac where you have the Windows mm-hmm. and go back and forth between the two. Um, more on that in a second. But <laughs> dualist. But you know how you <laughs> yeah. But you know how you install. Uh, certain software and it comes with an antivirus program that you did not want and suddenly it's there and how do you get rid of it? Sometimes I feel that that's what hell is. And, and, it, and it need not be Christianity. But but we can take Christianity Christianity as an example. Mm-hmm. We can also take uh, Tibetan Buddhism as an example where once one finds something really um, enamoring about the concept, something really positive like, you know, like there's this guy named Jesus and he's going to He's going to save my soul, or there is this uh, there's this thing called karma, and there and I can uh, eventually work myself through all these different uh, uh, phases of life and find liberation from the cycle of, of death and rebirth. But both Tibetan Buddhism and Christianity, if you if you look at them uh, closely enough, you you get into these problematic um, concerns about hell in uh, in the Christian tradition and in Tibetan Buddhism. A lot of a lot of thought goes into how to avoid uh, reincarnation into the lower realms. And actually, to devout Tibetan Buddhist uh, can cause a great deal of anxiety. Um, well, and what we're talking about, though, when we talk about anxiety, is the psychology of this. Yes. And uh, I thought it was very interesting in the book, The History of Hell by Alice K. Turner, that she brought up psychoanalysis in hell. And she said that the journey of Dante, because mm-hmm. this is sort of the gold uh, standard that we'll talk about, and Dante's Inferno, the the journey of Dante and Virgil through the Inferno was an interior metaphor, and it was an allegory of the human experience that you have to, you know, trudge through the dark night of the soul before spiritual reemergence. And so she said that this has really uh, turned out our idea of psychoanalysis. She says a patient must explore with his guide the deep sources of his unhappiness and inability to follow the true path, then he must endure the painful purgatory of examining and challenging his behavior before achieving the relative paradise of mental health. So even in this way, hell has pervaded our idea of of how we experience things as human beings, how we talk about them, uh, even psychoanalysis. And I was thinking about this in terms of madmen. 
Yes. Because this past season has been all about uh, a journey and certainly sins and, and dealing with sin and, and the, the weight of that sin. Yeah, and there's an early scene where Don Draper is reading The Inferno yes. on the beach. Yeah, and there's another great scene where Roger Sterling is in psychoanalysis, with, with and he's uh, he's sitting there trying to explain his frustration in life and where he's arrived. And it's really interesting, because usually Roger Sterling is just sort of cutting up and making jokes, but here he mm-hmm. is sort of giving you a portal into his soul. And he says uh, he's on this path. And it's a frustrating path. He says, what are the events in life? It's like you see a door. The first time you come to it, you say, oh, what's on the other side of the door? Then you open a few doors. Then you say, I think I want to go over that bridge this time. I'm tired of doors. Finally, you go through one of these things and you come out the other side and you realize that that's all there are. Doors and windows and bridges and gates. And they all open the same way and they all close behind you. Look, life is supposed to be a path and you go along and these things happen to you and they're supposed to change you, change your direction. But turns out that's not true. Turns out the experiences are nothing. They're just some pennies you pick up off the floor, you stick in your pocket and you're just going in a straight line to you know where. Wow. Hell, of course. And so that imagery, again, is and we'll get more into this when we talk about Dante and we talk about the nine circles of hell, but the bridges and the doors and the gates and the path and the meandering is all part and parcel of, of what we think of um, when we think about a journey of our soul or trying to transcend our physical selves. Yeah, medievalist Howard Roland Patch, uh, he actually broke down a number of the elements appearing in nearly all known accounts of the underworld, uh, you know, the afterlife, hell, Hades, what have you, uh, both in the eastern and western world. And uh, he said that they include a mountain barrier, a river, a boar, and a boatman, a bridge, gates and guardians, and an important tree. And except for uh, the bridge, all were present uh, in ancient Mesopotamian mythology. And, of course, uh, Roger Sterling alludes to these uh, in the uh, the passages that you read. Well, and, you know, it's still summer, and people are still taking their, their summer trips, their pilgrimages. Even, even these trips that we take to escape the monotony of life and mm-hmm. to find new experiences is, in a way retreading some of this idea of transcending hell. Yeah, brings me back to the the very first line in uh, Dante's uh, Inferno. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. There you go. That's what I say every time I get in the car to go on a road trip. (laughs) Uh, One one more thing to, to touch on before we start breaking down some of the the roots of hell. Um, It is important to to note that uh, a lot of us have multiple ideas of what uh, the soul is and what the afterlife is um, or, or, or isn't uh, in our head at the same time. You know, it's a, it's a bit simplistic to say, uh, my name's Robert Lamb and I don't believe in ghosts because there, you know, generally I don't believe in ghosts, but there are times where I'm more inclined to believe in it or more inclined to want to believe in it. And, uh, you know, the same goes with a lot of uh, religious and mythic things. Um, and I've talked before about this idea of like a spiritual uh, salad bar where you take what you want and you leave the rest. And, mm-hmm. and apparently it's even more popular with uh, with millennials these days where they feel completely, you know, OK with, with saying, all right, I, I like this stuff in Buddhism. I'm going to take that. Um, I like this bit from Christianity. I'm going to take that. And then you sort of build your own uh, faith or worldview out of that. Uh but but really, we do a lot of that anyway. It, it's kind of a, the, the the view of the, the world that I have right now is not necessarily the one I have, um, you know, yesterday, tomorrow. So a, a lot of people have varying and conflicting ideas about what the soul is and, and, and who we are. And and re- really, we've talked about uh, human consciousness and our views yeah. of that in the past. And, and a lot of that is part and partial to this to 
through hell and, and beliefs in the afterlife. Because a lot of it comes down to our questions and our inability to, to come to terms with the difference between, uh, between flesh and mind and trying to figure out what the mind is. Then we get into this idea of the mind slash soul is this thing that exists outside of ourselves and therefore continues after we're gone. So, Yeah, it's so fascinating when you start to think about it that way, that hell is not only the way that we color our perception of the world and we organize our world. Again, think mm-hmm. of jails, uh, think of our judicial system, but also it is part and parcel of consciousness. So in other words, since the beginning of time that man became conscious that, you know, he or she was alive and looked up at the stars and wondered about death and wondered about what would happen afterward, there has always been some sort of afterlife story put in place or some sort of exploration of that topic, which you can't have consciousness without having this idea of what would happen afterward. Even if that, even if that, that thing that happened afterward was nothing. Yeah. That's still a story in a sense. Yeah, exactly. And, and it comes down to early people and even modern people trying to figure out how the world works. And there are things that you can test and that you can uh, you can throw a scientific investigation at. Um, and then there are things that you cannot. And uh, w- when you cannot answer those questions with science, that's where all of this uh, myth building comes into play. Um now, we're going to go into kind of a brief history of hell. I'm not going to go through everything. If you want a really fabulous uh, examination of the history of hell and our belief in it, uh, do check out The History of Hell by Alice K. Turner. It's a fabulous book, very readable, wonderful illustrations throughout. Um, but we're not going to give that, that concise of a journey because we'll be here all day. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, with all of this is that is that you, you have to look at religion not as a thing that, that comes off the presses, you know, completely made. It is, um, it's more like a, a, a pit uh, through which humans have thrown ideas down, or like an ice cream cone where we're piling ideas up. Um, but for instance, um, you know, I've, I've read a, a little bit about uh, Hinduism here and there, and I, I often um, read that it, it described as something that you can't really sum up. Like you can't give like a really good one paragraph summary of what Hinduism is, because Hinduism is such an old religion built on, you know, earlier Vedic models. It just, it, it's just a pit that goes down through the centuries, through through millennia. And there have just been all of these ideas of, about gods and goddesses and the human mm-hmm. soul thrown down there, ranging from the literal to the, the, the philosophic. And, uh, and there are, there are shallower pits as well, such as the, the pits of, uh, of, uh, of Judeo-Christian and Islamic tradition. And, uh, and those two are, are built upon all these ideas that have built up over, over the years. And the, like the Christianity of today is not the Christianity of a few centuries ago, uh, et cetera. So keep all of that in mind. Yeah, I kind of think of it as those being sediments, right? So yeah. Layers of stories that have just been built upon each other. And if you were to take a soil sample and bring it out, you could be able, you would be able to identify like, oh, look, there's the, uh, Egypt- Egyptian book of dead. Yes. Um, you know, there's Judicaia, there's, you know, and, and be able to say like that informed this and this informed that and so on and so forth. Yeah. And to go back to the, uh, the analogy of, uh, of religion as a, as a program on the operating system, it probably makes for a pretty unruly program uh, that I'm sure some of our, our programmer listeners out there can, can attest to. But it's, it's a system that's just built up over time and probably, you know, it, you probably need to go in there and just recreate everything, but you have all of this stuff that's in there. Uh, via legacy. Okay, so we should all pull up a chair right now, get settled, and uh, lay it on us. Give, okay. us. give us the roots of hell. Okay, well, a uh, fabulous uh, notion that was presented in some of the texts we were looking at uh, is the idea that what happens when you go back to, like, really ancient man, hunter-gatherer man. Mm-hmm. 
what 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 are they what kind of gods are they glimpsing? Well, certainly uh, gods that had to do with hunting, right? Yeah. Because this was not an agrarian society yet. Yeah. So they were on the move. And uh, it seems to me like they would be things would be a lot less um, stable for them. Yeah. Be like the winds of change all the time. Chaotic. even. Yes. So the argument is that the, the early uh, humans, they looked to horned gods, gods of the hunt, gods that were like, you know, like the deer god that is over the deer that we hunt. Um, it's a god of chaos, and mm-hmm. it's a god that uh, you're just kind of really, you're really hoping that the the deer god will shine on you, so that you can actually find enough deer, kill enough deer, and bring back enough meat where your people can survive for another day. So, those are the gods of the hunt. But then, in time, we learn to grow things. This agrarian society begins to grow up, and suddenly we begin to adopt new gods. We bring in uh, celestial gods, gods uh, that uh, are in line with the seasons and cycles. Because now we're farming and we're much more tied to the land and things are a lot more predictable, right? Mm-hmm. So you kind of have all of these uh, demigods hanging out from from years past, right? Yeah, you don't want to throw out the old gods. Thousands of years past. This yeah. sounds like a, a bad idea and they're yeah. chaotic and they have horns. So we keep them, but they're more resided to the earth. And so we end up with these these horned earth gods and these uh, celestial sky gods. Um, so that's one kind of cool idea of just sort of looking at the roots of some of our beliefs about uh, not only ruling, uh, uh, you know, superhuman deities, mm-hmm. but also the places they inhabit. This idea of sky and deep earth and then the, the middle ground where we humans do our thing. And speaking of deep earth, where are we burying people but in the earth? So, right. again, there's this idea of the afterlife being tied to what is under us. Now, I already mentioned some of the uh, the, the elements that you find in even the most ancient ideas of the afterlife. And, uh, and, and this all you know, dates back to, to just ancient Mesopotamian mythology. This is the age of Gilgamesh, 4,000 years ago. And even here you had... a. You had a celestial queen uh, named Inanna, or Ishtar, who rules over the heavens and the earth, while her sister queen, Urshkagal, or Alatu, rules over the dead in the land of no return. And we live in that space between, this borderland between uh, heaven and a sort of hell. Uh, and, 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 and we quickly find Gilgamesh traveling to the other side uh, in the first of many descent stories to fill human history. Um, and then there's another story where uh, Urshkigal even takes a hostage from the heavens, ushering in cyclical seasons, which is another trope that occurs throughout myth. The idea that, uh, that one of the sky beings is taken and has to live a certain part of the year, mm-hmm. the winter, uh, in the underworld. Uh, and then there's even another tale where Urshkigal uh, threatens to flood the earth with the dead, quote, so that they might devour the living, which also makes it kind of the oldest uh, zombie <laughs> account, or at least a threat of zombies. Right. But even in these these uh, these stories, the afterlife remains a place of sort of generic unlife, a sort of limbo uh, in another world. There's no true punishment or reward. It's just this idea that, well, the, the, the soul, the consciousness lives on. And what does it do? I guess it just kind of bums about in a gray, shadowy world. Uh, and this is an idea that, that sticks with us for a very long time. Now, uh, if we look back at the Egyptian Book of the Dead uh, from around uh, 1500 B.C., we've, we find uh, some very fascinating, very rich views of what the afterlife would be. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, in the ancient Egyptian religion, it failed to travel well, uh, as Alice K. Turner uh, makes, makes this point. Also, it didn't survive the test of time, but it's just not something that really spread. And it didn't have legs, <laughs> you could say. No, and if it did, we would probably all worship cats, right? Yes, they loved they loved their cats. More so than we do now. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it was a rich religion, and it put extreme emphasis on the afterlife. Um, it had a, just a lot of 
a lot of amazing ideas about what the soul was. For instance, uh, the soul was just one aspect of the person. Mm-hmm. You had a soul or ba that's often depicted as a human-headed bird. Uh, and there's just one part of this, the, the cocktail of being, which in, in also involved a, a ka or life force, a ku or spiritual intelligence, a sikim or power, and a kahibit uh, shadow, oh, and a rin name. So all these things come together uh, to make up who we are. Um, but then the idea is that if you die, then your soul will continues on this journey. And this is where I think it's, it's really interesting because in the Egyptian Book of Dead, you begin to see this judicial system evolve right. because your soul can actually be weighed. And it can be weighed against the feather from the headdress of Mat, who is the goddess of truth. Mm-hmm. And if your heart is burdened with sin, well, you'll find out that Amit, a, a tiny little creature that's sitting nearby, will gobble up your heart. This will be your fate. So here we have this idea of the afterlife coming to fruition in the Book of Dead. Um, so again, you might not think of this coloring our worldview now, but... But later on. Yeah, later yeah. on, yeah, things are things are being put into place about what happens when you sin. Yeah, so the idea is that if you're good, you get to pass on into this uh, other world, this uh, Sakit Haru, the Field of Rushes. And if you're bad, it's just annihilation. This monster eats your soul, and that's it. Uh, and but, but then the interesting thing is the Field of Rushes is is not a heaven, and it's not. But it's also not just that gray area of limbo. It's mm-hmm. kind of like it's its own fabulous world. There are 15 regions, each ruled by a god. One of them is there, there's this one place where there's no air, and an egg god rules over everything. Or it's like the god is in an egg. It's very cryptic and and wonderful. And you have to take with you stuff, as you know, is evident by anyone who's ever watched a documentary about pyramids. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a world where you're going to need, uh, you know, you, you might want to farm there. You're going to need some protection against giant beetles. Uh, you might uh, need some spells. Uh, you might, you might need to bring some loved ones, some pets, some gold, some food, some comfort. Do you know? And I didn't realize this until I read this book um, that uh, there were golems that were buried with them, and the golems, of mm-hmm. course, are like this uh, sort of not mindless person or creature, but it does your bidding. Yeah, it's a like an. an an inanimate form that is given life through some manner of sorcery. So in the afterlife, if you have like 40 golems, you are set because they're doing everything for you. Mm-hmm. So anyway, just an interesting little yeah, you, side you, you note on that. Yeah, you see that idea too in the Terracotta Warriors. You know, the idea yeah. that you need an army in the afterlife, build one, bring it with you. It makes me want to, I, I mean, I, I think my plan is to be cremated uh, when I die, but maybe I can still have a golem. I feel like I need a golem. To help me out. Well, your ashes could be contained in a golem. Ooh, I like that. Mm-hmm. But does that mean I become the golem? It becomes kind of complicated. Now, Depends. I definitely want a uh, psychopomp, which you also see a lot in, in these tales. Um, psychopomp being uh, a spirit guide or a creature that takes you through the afterlife. So maybe the golem could be my psychopomp. Or I kind of hope that my psychopomp is a cat, but we'll see. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> Egyptian Book of the Dead, that contribution. Um now, eventually, uh, you get some really cool ideas in the form of uh, Zoroastrianism. Uh, and this is, uh, like, pretty much everything else. It has its roots in ancient Vedic beliefs of India. And it's, it is a dualist religion, meaning that there is an absolute force of good uh, in the universe counterbalanced by an absolute force of evil. Mm-hmm. The good is Aramazda, who uh, lives in the sky, and the evil is Araman, who lives in uh, the hell beneath the earth. And after death, the soul is judged by an angelic spirit named Rashnu, uh, and the good pot pass on into the house of song. The evil descend into hell, which is ruled by Yama, the first man to die. And the rest, they go into this limbo that resembles this original Babylonian vision of the afterlife. Again, shadowy, 
world where souls just kind of bum around and bounce into each other. And uh, and this this is also really key with, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Zoroastrianism is that a cosmic battle will ultimately decide everything. A savior will descend into hell. Oh right. Yeah, ascent will descend into hell. Yeah, save everybody. Hell will be destroyed, and new kingdom of God will be born on earth. What does that sound like? Oh my goodness, that sounds like Christianity. In fact, a savior named Socian is born of a virgin impregnated with the seed of Zoroaster. Whoa. So that's pretty specific, right? You can see yeah. the influence there pretty clearly. Yeah. And, you know, and, I, and I, that doesn't take away from any beliefs. Like I say, I, I think it's just about realizing that this is how we get our beliefs. We right. build up these stories over time. And, you know, you should be happy that your system of belief has deep roots. Um, there are some other ideas that, of course, uh, kicked around as well. The Greeks, uh, Romans, and Jews had uh, some very similar ideas uh, in, in many respects. With the ancient Greeks, uh, we see the uh, the afterlife, Hades, as a mere repository for the dead. And uh, there's some punishment there. But it's generally, you know, the titans that are chained, the, uh, you know, the, right. the elder beings that, uh, that, uh, the gods warred with. And they, so you'd have to really commit a crime against the gods to be punished in the afterlife. Otherwise, it's just, uh, gray souls, shadows bumping into each other. Well, it's kind of like a house of horrors, right? Almost like that the teen, like, um, house of horrors that are put yeah. on by churches where you can see all the sins. In those typical stories, um, it's more of like just, hey, we're going to cruise through here and we're going to just see a little bit, a little flavor of this. Well, yeah, everybody wants to, to visit hell. So many of our stories are like that. <laughs> I mean, true. Dante's uh, story is a big one. But, uh, you know, Dante was not the first person to write a story where someone uh, toured the afterlife. I right. mean, Virgil did it uh, before him. That's why Virgil is his guide or his psychopomp uh, in uh, Inferno. And, uh, and you just saw countless versions of this before. People are always... Going down into the underworld to save somebody or just to tour it, to learn something, to grow, it's just a, it's a common trope that we keep coming back to, and we're going to continue to do it. Um, speaking of Virgil, of course, uh, the, the the Romans initially had views more in keeping with uh, Shintoism, where you had spirits and everything. Um, uh, but with uh, increasing doses of Greek myth, uh, you know, it, it changed yeah. and, and really grew more into that model. Uh, and then Virgil wrote the Aeneid, which sees our hero Aeneas travel to the land of the dead in search of advice from his dead father. And uh, again, of course, Virgil goes on to, to influence Dante, which we'll discuss later. And then you have the the Jews who believed in a place uh, called Sheol, which is often translated as the grave or the pit. And again, just another gray, ghostly world of shades. Uh, uh, Turner says in her book that there was a lot of cross-pollinization going on in the Roman Empire because you had the Greek mm-hmm. influence, you had the Roman influence. and uh, Eastern U- influences coming in as well. Right. She sees uh-huh. like all sorts of things uh, starting to converge. And uh, w- w- there's a good little passage here that says, The old religions were assaulted by a mosaic of novelties. Entirely new gods like the Greco-Egyptian Serapis were fabricated, while old ones arrived from strange lands. It goes on to say that there's influence in Turkey and so on and so forth. So you get a lot of the the uh, sharing of ideas here. And again, this rich fabric of what the story of hell and the afterlife becomes for us. Yeah. And then uh, the uh, Zoroastrian influence continues uh, and it continues to uh, d- democratize hell in, uh, in Turner's words. Um, the good souls have to go somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. And then the bad souls have to go somewhere else. And then you get this rich, dark, disturbing and endlessly fascinating vision uh, of what hell might consist of. And then we have to rationalize all of that with our belief in and or a devotion to a divine being. So you get into this problem of hell, and you have to work out the kinks. In, right. in a sense, like the idea of a program that is built upon a previous program and a previous one, you have all these problems that need to be worked out in the program. Or like a 
a, a novel that is each chapter has been written by a different author, and you have to go back and somehow work all these plot holes out. Well, and it is really interesting because depending on the culture, uh, your your hell is going to be very different. So if you have a culture that has a lot of different levels of classes, right. then you're going to have many different classes in hell. Or, as you say, there's a uh, one version of hell that is democratized. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's talking more about perhaps the Greek culture and people existing. If you've sinned, then then you're all on the same page or, you know, nobody is higher than the other person. And I uh, couldn't help but think about the blog post that you recently wrote, this is a little bit of a diversion, but it's about cubicles yeah. and office space and which version of hell, your your open office or your cubicle hell. Um, and there's an element of de- democratization to that as well. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get even more into this idea of the problem of hell. All right, we're back. So what could be the problem with a place where sinners are flayed, staked, disemboweled, and eaten alive? What's wrong with that? Well, because in, in, in most of these, you have to it has to make sense with the rest of this universe that you've built. And, uh, and there, there are different ways you, you attempt to do that. But uh, uh, certainly any kind of monotheistic religion, you have a god at the head of it. And what kind of god do you want to invest your time in? Is it a, is it a god who has something called a hell and allows it to exist and sends people there, that sends dead infants there, that sends people who hadn't heard uh, about the the message or the truth, people that had varying, uh, uh, you know, faiths and varying beliefs that they go there as well. I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? Or do you decide that your God is that type of God? And then does that shake your belief in the whole system? So there's two issues there. Like one is how do you mete out justice in the afterlife, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you determine what is sin and what is not sin? Because everybody has a different take on that. And as you said, if you have innocents, say babies who are not baptized, then, well, they're going to hell, right? Yeah, you got to create new rules to figure out how that works. And you've got a choice. You can have a God who is warm and cuddly and fuzzy that you take a positive message from and you just kind of say, you know what, hell is not my concern. Heaven is my concern. Yeah. And uh, this God would like me to join him in heaven. Clearly, or you could say, I may not be worthy for heaven, and and many other people may not be as well. Yeah. Now there there are various ways of dealing with this, and one is just exactly what kind of a view of hell there is, and and it's not quite as simple as there are those of us who do not believe there is hell, and then there are those of us who believe there is a literal place where the, where devils torture sinners. It's not quite that kind of right. You do have literal. There is literal belief in hell, where it is that where there is a place probably under the earth where sinners are tormented. But then there's also a more psychological view where instead of being physically tormented at the at the behest or at least the permission of a sadistic God, uh, it's more about being separate from God, that being separate from God is torture. Um, there's a, like a mild psych- psychological view. There's um, there's the idea that hell is self-inflicted and you throw free will into the equation and say, well, it's not really God tormenting you. You had the free will, and you're choosing to live this way. And in some of these uh, models, you can get out at any time you want. It's just do you do you have the belief? Do you have the faith to do so? There's uh, there are also plenty of uh, versions of it where hell is temporary. The idea that hell is like a place where souls only have to uh, burn for a certain amount of time, and then they either um, are saved or they're annihilated at the end. There's some versions uh, of, uh, of of hell uh, belief where hell is annihilation. Being cast into the fiery furnace 
is is death, is annihilation. It is that crocodile-faced beast from uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And then you have, uh, especially in Eastern models of of the hells, uh, such as the the Nakaras in uh, you know Hinduism, Buddhism, and various other Asian myth cycles, the idea that we go through these different lives, there's we're reincarnated into different uh, phases of being, and you can fall down the chain of being, you can fall into these lesser realms of existence, such as the hellish Nakaras. Mm-hmm. But it's but it's not a permanent place. Um, it's a place that you can you experience, and it's kind of a refining of the soul, and then you can you can work your way back up to uh, better stages of existence, and ultimately, ideally, free yourself from the wheel entirely. <laughs> the problem is that nobody can really agree on what hell is, right? right? So, uh, and I think the the issue of this is that you know from from classical texts back to very very ancient texts, it was thought that hell dwelled under us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it made things a lot easier back then to think that, yeah, in a sense. Because what you're talking about is that it's below ground, geographically, you can point at that time and say, clearly, it's it's right underneath us. Uh, in fact, Pausanias, a Greek geographer, said that hell lies as far beneath Hades as Hades is beneath the earth. But along comes Galileo. Mm-hmm. And Galileo suggests, well, you know, the Earth is not the center of the universe. The sun does not revolve around the Earth. And therefore, if the Earth is not the center of the universe, then where where does hell now reside? So that was really one of the big problems with the church is that they said, okay, if, if heaven is hanging above us and hell is below us and you're telling us that there's something beyond the Earth, that is the universe, Mm -hmm. um, and we're not central to it, then it really does displace hell and it makes it much less likely as a logical construct. Or you just have to make, you have to imagine that it exists in like another dimension, that heaven and hell are both extra-dimensional places. You couldn't even fly there in a spaceship. Ah, but this is the teasing apart of hell in mm-hmm. the logistics of it, in a sense, because now that it is um, banished to even a further realm of imagination... That it's been taken out of the ground, the soil. Yeah, it's been turned into Narnia. It's been turned into Narnia. Then you begin to understand that it is perhaps a construct of the human mind. And that's all part of the problem, too, uh, because uh, you you have uh, individuals who, who see it this way, and then you have individuals who either do believe in a hell, or more likely they cling to a faith that also has hell uh, somewhere in the fabric. And we've all had that situation where we've, uh, if, if we are not, uh, you know, Uber religious ourselves, you'll end up encountering someone who is. And if you don't actually, you may not actually discuss it with them, but there will come a point, and I remember this, in, you know, thinking about this a lot in like junior high and high school, where, you know, I had friends that were, they mostly were Protestant, uh, but they were all these different Protestant faiths, some of which supposedly uh, thought they were the only ones who would actually make it to heaven. I don't know how much of that was just sort of infighting and bickering. But that was kind of the charge. Like mm-hmm. they would say, "Oh, well, those guys at that church—they think they're the only ones going to heaven." And then we also had uh, there were some there were Catholics in the area. There were Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I had a number of friends who were, who who are Mormon, and um, and so you end up in these situations where you're like, "Now, if their faith is right, that mm-hmm. means I'm going to hell." And then my preacher just the other day said that these guys are going to hell, and you start trying to map out these different relationships and. If you you know if you let this kind of thing get the better of you, you it can lead to some uh, uncomfortable confrontations. It can, and I think because some of this is predicated on what Turner calls abominable fancy. Um, oh. Did you come across this yes. in the book? I, I thought it was really interesting. It's ultimately this catharsis that's built on the foundation of Schadenfreude, 
So Turner says that it's a it's one of the less savory notions of the early church, and it's this idea that part of the joy of being saved lay in contemplating the souls of the damned. Yeah, it's uh, it, there's also a, a, in this idea is this kind of a notion that in this world, in the real world, evils often go unpunished and goods often go unrewarded. Mm-hmm. But eventually, if we're faithful in the afterlife. God's going to sort it all out. And these people that, that were that were vicious or vile or lived outside of my group, uh, they will get their comeuppance, and I will get my rewards. Uh, so, and, and that can be, I guess, you know, like you said, it can be a comforting idea, especially if someone is in a, is is downtrodden. If your life really is not working out and is filled with a lot of uh, a lot of torment, mm-hmm. there's got to be something rewarding about the notion. Well, in the next life. I'm going to be rewarded, and these people who are living high in the hog off of my misery, they're going to be the ones to, to suffer. So that can be both a rewarding and a, and a disturbing concept. Likewise, there's the, the ever-present concept of hell as the boogeyman story. Hell as the thing that someone t- is the, the threat that someone gives you in order to make you fall into line. But it also is cathartic in the sense that uh, what they're saying with abominable fancy is that you can occupy the station of the boogeyman. meeting out justice, right? So if you're sitting there saying, I'm saved and you're damned, then in a sense, uh, you're inhabiting this sort of false humility. And it reminded me of the the episode we did on pride when we did the seven sins, Mm -hmm. because there was a study in which it was talked about how humility, which is thought to be the opposite of pride, is actually pretty similar in terms of what's going on in the noggin, and uh, there's cognitive neuroscientist Julian Paul Keenan. He looked at transcranial magnetic stimulation to disrupt deliberate self-deprecation, this humility. Mm-hmm. He found that the patterns of brain activation during self-deprecation are fundamentally the same as self-deceptive pride. So that the same part of the brain is activated. And I thought that was really interesting because it, maybe some of this is tied to that, that this idea that you're hardwired or humans are hardwired in a way to try to uh, put themselves on a pedestal and mete out justice and assume this false humility in order to see themselves feel vindicated in any sort of do-gooding that they've performed. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's like vigilante justice on a weird kind of like thought way, you know, in a, in a, a mental vigilante action. It, yeah, right, right. So it would be very interesting if they could take that study and mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, slice it up with people who are contemplating hell for others and see if that corresponded. But I just wanted to mention that because I think, again, this is a problem of hell. Yeah. Is it meant to, um, to divert us in a way that's uh, cooperative for the community that's a positive? In other words, can hell exist as this example that we point to and say, you're going to go to hell if you don't you know, do what you're supposed to do? Or is it a way of us occupying maybe the darkest reaches of our minds Yeah. and um, and playing out this drama in a safe way, right? Yeah. You don't actually want anybody to be hurt or tormented or eaten in hell, but it's a it's a easy way to say, ah, oh, that person, they drive me nuts. They're going to hell. Yeah, and that's where a lot of the problem comes in. Like, how do you separate the, oh, you know, they're, they suck, they're going to go to hell. Like, how do you... You, you have to, you, it's one thing to think that, but then how do you rationalize that with some sort of notion that, oh yeah, they'll actually go to a place where, uh, you know, demons will, you know, torment their flesh forever. You know, that's, like, 
you know, who, who deserves that? Well, and it's funny because we talk about it more in this this abstract realm, but back in the day, particularly in Galileo, this was a real threat, right? If someone yeah. thought that you were committing a sin, uh, they would meet out that justice for you. They wouldn't wait for for uh, they wouldn't sit around and say, "Ah, oh, when he gets to hell, he's going to suffer." Well, in the, the medieval church, of course, they had a tremendous amount of power over the the faithful because they ultimately had the power to decide who goes to hell and go, who goes to heaven. Uh, you know, you could you could put uh, you know a nation under interdict. You could uh, you could uh, excommunicate somebody, and that was uh, if if you believed into into it enough, and a lot of people did. That was that was a tremendous threat to level against an individual, and it 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 can it could and did decide like you know whole international incidents. Right. Which again, <laughs> if you don't think that hell has some sort of uh, shaping of our current culture. You're wrong because you have to look back again at these examples which have informed how we live today. Yeah, if we didn't have uh, have some sort of a theology involving hell at varying stages in uh, the history of Western civilization, mm-hmm. we'd be speaking different languages now. It's you true. Know? I they, shouldn't say you're wrong, but I would say please reconsider. Yeah, I mean, just look, look back at the events of 1066 and imagine a, a world in which uh, the Catholic Church didn't level this kind of supposed power over the the fate of the soul. And and you know we did an episode on witchcraft, so um, yeah, yeah, or rather witches. And I won't go into that, but you can certainly see the trail uh, that that led to. I did want to mention that uh, Turner says that Dante, mm-hmm. in exploring hell so richly in uh, the Divine Comedy, that he unintentionally killed hell. Huh. Again, this is a, the notion that if you make something into a story or you abstract it enough that it, the logic of it begins to be teased apart. She said it's because he invited readers to join him and Virgil in a story. And she said that Dante made it easier for intellectuals of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment to reject its reality. Yeah, and and it's also worth noting that with uh, the Inferno, it was not written in Latin; it was written in Italian. Yeah, because he wanted it to be accessible by a general audience, without having to undergo uh, particular, possibly brutal translation by others. And it was it was wildly popular. Mm-hmm. So you might be sitting here thinking, okay, hell is this construct? Um, some people believe in hell, but just how many people believe in hell? What are we talking about here? Well, we were looking at a particular um, article here uh, titled, uh, Who Believes in Religious Evil? An Investigation of Sociological Patterns of Belief in Satan, Hell, and Demons by Joseph Baker at Baylor University. He basically deals uh, with, with just the United States in this. But in breaking down uh, some of the uh, uh, the the demographics here, it, it, it is a bit telling. Um, and uh, you, you can find this article online. Uh, I'm not going to just read through the numbers and stats mm-hmm. uh, for you, but uh, I thought I would uh, read just a little bit from the uh, discussion uh, section of the article. So Baker says, um, in, in, in summarizing his stats about these different groups and, and who believes what, he said, uh, African Americans tend to have stronger belief in religious evil than do whites. Women have stronger degree of belief than men. Uh, not of a net of religious controls, younger Americans uh, hold stronger belief in conceptions of religious evil than older Americans. Finally, social class plays an important role in how certain an individual is about the existence of religious evil, with those of higher social class having weaker confidence about the existence of religious evil. However, these effects are conditioned by church attendance. For those exhibiting a high level of participation in organized religion, the influence of social class is neutralized. For those not actively participating in organized religion, Religion, the influence of social class is more pronounced. These results indicate that traditionally power and resource-deprived groups, African Americans and those of lower social classes, exhibit strong beliefs in religious evil. 
Difficult life circumstances and suffering often lead individuals to search for meaning. Moreover, suffering forces people to conceive of God as removed from this uh, you know, hell equation, or they uh, attribute the source of suffering to some other form of evil. So I thought that was interesting because it, it deals not only with just sort of the demographics. It lets you right. know like where you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, how that influences your belief, and... I thought it interesting. The more downtrodden you are, it's the the less likely you are to be worried by the problem of hell, because you kind of remove God from the the source of suffering. God is a source of relief, not suffering. Well, and uh, the perspective of God as the good cop and Satan as the bad cop, right? Yeah, yeah and you end up falling back into this more dualist view of the great evil and the great good. Because in Christian mm-hmm. tradition, Satan is just a fallen angel. He's a disgruntled uh, former employee who <laughs> wields a great amount of power. But he's not the equal of God. It's not. Uh, it's not the uh, you know the ancient uh, uh, you know Mesopotamian idea. It's not the Zoroastrian or the uh, or the Gnostic notion of these two uh, uh, forces. And in fact, uh, the Catholic Church uh, in persecuting heresies uh, tried really hard to keep dualism from creeping its way back in, into the into this uh, un, into the understanding of the universe. Well, let me put a uh, hard stat against all of this, uh, at least here in the United States, according to Alice K. Turner. 62% of Americans believe in hell, up from 52% in 1953. Now, here's the real kicker, and here's where American optimism really shines. (laughs) Only 4% think that they'll end up in hell. There you go. I mean, it... (laughs) I I was reading some some thoughts on this, too, where in, in, in... Particularly in the United States... No, no one really thinks they're going to go to hell. And then we tend to even we may you know subscribe to a religion that has some pretty uh, uh, well confusing, but some certain rules in place saying who gets to go and who's who's good, who's bad. But then ultimately we kind of fall back on the idea that most people go to heaven and only really bad people go to hell. And certainly all the celebrities go to heaven. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Even the Kardashians. Yeah, well, you know, they're, they'll just sort of wander in Maybe. There. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because of, of that 60, 62% of, of Americans who believe in hell, 96% think that they're not going to go there. So do they really, in their heart of hearts, and we can't obviously um, answer this, but do they really, in their heart of hearts, believe in a hell if they don't think they're going there? Or do they just sort of say, uh, well, I believe in heaven, and they said there's a hell, so I guess I believe in that too. Because um, I was recently listening to an interview, Terry Gross interviewed Stephen King mm-hmm. uh, last month, I think, and she was asking him about some of this, like belief in heaven and hell and the supernatural. And uh, and he, he said that, that he found it a bit silly to, to believe in heaven and not in hell. You know, it's like, why would you just believe in the one when they're kind of a pair? And, you know, I... I guess that's a, a valid argument. You could, you know, point back to some of these uh, ancient models, uh, the Mesopotamian, uh, well, not the Mesopotamian models, but some of the, uh, the other models and say, well, there's always, you know, there's always this duality. But then it's not always the case. There are plenty of examples of, uh, of afterlife views in which there's really, there's only one place the soul is going, and it may be neutral or it may be varying de- degrees of positive. So, again, the problem of hell is the problem of death and the limits of knowledge. Yes. I mean, not to, to be so reductionist about it, but it, it all points back to this idea of where we can't uh, we can't really wrap our minds around what's going to happen to us. Um, so this is what's really interesting about it is that, uh, nonetheless, supernatural punishment informs how we go about our daily lives, apparently. Yeah. And this is uh, we're going to get into a couple of uh, studies here, uh, um, sociology studies that, that look at in 
and look at correlations between different facts, between beliefs in the in supernatural evil, between beliefs in heaven and hell, and how people behave, how economies behave. And, you know, it's not all cut and dry. It's more about correlation. The authors are not saying this is the, the relationship. They're saying this is interesting. We need to study this more. But it, it, it's in a way these these uh, studies that we're about to discuss they represent a kind of problem of hell for well, you know for for me even because it, when I was first researching this I was kind of had it in my mind I you know was reading uh, uh, Ian M Banks uh, a book that deals with the the, the matter that I was uh, discussing in the uh, the summer reading episode and you know I kept thinking of hell as this barbaric idea that that the the more advanced a society becomes. The, the the more we need to get rid of it that it's mm-hmm. that it's a, a dinosaur a, you know a, a brutal fantasy and we're better off without it what good could it possibly do us and then here are these two studies that kind of make a case for hell being a positive motivator again positive motivator we say this in the the, the uh, studies quick to point out again this these are um, correlations mm-hmm. so there's a lot more going on there's very complex things going on in societies to determine the crime rate. But that being said, let's roll out some of the data here. Okay. All right. So uh, Azim F. Sharif, uh, he co-authored the 2012 paper, Divergent Effects of Belief in Heaven and Hell on National Crime Rates. And uh, his findings are encouraging or discouraging, <laughs> depending on how you look at the matter. Uh, he compared the national crime rates uh, with rates of belief in heaven and hell in 67 countries. And he came up with, uh, with these findings. First of all, Heaven's belief rate is almost always higher than hell's belief rate. Mm-hmm. All right, that's be- totally by that, uh, and uh, that kind of collaborates my theory that that hell's kind of an unwanted add-on. You know, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, but then the paper's uh, major statistical finding was that nations with higher belief rates in hell predicted lower crime rates, while higher belief rates in heaven predicted higher crime rates. So the idea is that uh, hell-fearing citizens are more mindful of screwing up in this life, while the heaven crowd think that they've got it knocked, you know, in the next uh, life, so they might as well do what they want in this one. Okay, so this is uh, from a comprehensive analysis of 26 years of data involving over 143,000 people in 67 countries. Now, in 2003, a Harvard University researcher, Robert J. Barrow, and Rachel M. McClearly found that the gross domestic product was higher in developed countries when people believed in hell more than they did in heaven. So here's another aspect of it. That being said, if the gross domestic product is higher and uh, there's a, a, a bigger belief in hell in those communities and there's less crime, could you say that the economics of this are playing a part. In other words, these communities are being served better. They have better opportunities for people. And therefore, and I'm just throwing, I'm devil's advocate here. Nah. <laughs> uh, just throwing in some other nuances uh, of what it means to have a high crime rate or a low crime rate. And we know that low opportunities um, often predict higher crime, right? Exactly, yes. So I get that, um, that you know, there's higher crime when people in this correlation, uh, say that they believe more in heaven than they do in hell. But again, there's a lot going on. In fact, uh, there are some studies coming out about how even weather affects crime. Yeah. And so you can't just say, oh, it's a belief system that's keeping everything under wraps here. I found it interesting in the, uh, uh, the, the paper on hell as a, uh, as in its effect on crime. They pointed out that, uh, human trafficking bucked the trend. 
pretty much across the board. So, so human trafficking as, uh, as, as vile as it can be in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in some situations, like that was just, people didn't even think of that as being something you'd go to hell for. Even in a country where otherwise you would be like, you know, murders and thieves would definitely be going. Really? Yeah. Because, human trafficking. Well, where does it say in the, the Bible not to traffic humans and not to uh, forget to feed them in a, in a, you know, a cargo container? Hmm. It doesn't. So it's kind of a gray area there, I guess, for some people. And yet, it seems so logical as something that, that is, you know, not something you should do. Yeah, I know not to do it. That's why I don't smuggle people across uh, international borders. And not to get off on another topic, but this is a huge problem in the United States, especially for um, for sex trafficking. Yes. And uh, these are a lot of crimes that are perpetrated against women, and they're sort of under the radar. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there right now, but it's kind of mortifying to know that that's the perspective. Well, on I it. guess in some cases the individual is saying, I am allowing you to take this journey, and if this journey ends in a horrible place for you, well... My hands are clean, which kind of reminds me of some of these arguments about hell and God. God is sort of saying, look, you have the free will. I'm allowing you to take this journey that's going to end you, uh, that's going to wind up in hell. But uh, but my hands are clean. Good cop. Yeah. I'm the good cop. Um, you know what Jean-Paul Sartre would say. What would he say? Hell is other people. Oh, well, yes. So, and uh, as a side note, there's actually an app that's called Hell as Other People. Yeah, what does it do? It, it tells you where your friends are so you can avoid them. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is brilliant because um, my wife and I, uh, my wife particularly uh, has this thing about running into people she knows at the, the grocery store, which I totally uh, understand because a lot of times you go into the grocery store, you're not there to socialize. <laughs> you're not dressed up for it. You're there to, to carry out a task. Yeah. And if you run into somebody, it's uh, it's awkward. You know, like you, you can say, hey, all right, I, I, I said hi to you. Now we depart. And then you run into them again, and you have to either you pretend, keep seeing them in the grocery store, them, and it's weird, and it's awkward. So if yeah, if you had an app that let you know that uh, you know this coworker, this friend was at Kroger, then you might just go to Publix instead. But then you would feel like you had no free will, like your life was being dictated by the coordinates of your friends that you're trying to avoid, because your hair's messy. Yeah, <laughs> not messy, messy. Well, it's it's a problem. It's what it is. It is. Yeah. It is. All right. Well, there you have it. Uh, the problem of hell. Explored a little bit there for you the origins of hell, the idea of hell as a as a cultural, religious, uh, theological, philosophical construct. Um, and certainly, if you want to want to read more about it, again, highly recommend the History of Hell by Alice K. Turner, wonderful book. And uh, we're going to do another episode after this, published after this, where we're going to get into some of the science of hell, where we're going to deal a little more with this, but there's going to be less of a of a focus on on what we believe and more about some of the science that we've applied. Um, often is kind of a thought experiment to what we think we know about hell. That's right. What is the trajectory of the fall? Yes. Or something like that. Cool. All right. Well, in the meantime, uh, everyone out there can uh, get in touch with us. You can uh, let us know, what do you think about hell? Do you think it's a barbaric... uh dinosaur that does bone that some of us cling to is it is it important do you, do you feel like uh, do you believe in hell if you do does it make you a better person or do you feel kind of guilty about it i mean it, anything that we've discussed in here is a fair game you can find us in the normal means you can go to stuff to that's the, the the main website uh, i have a number of blogs that i've done leading up to this uh, about hell and you can find those there you can find all our episodes and then you can find us on social media we're on that uh, twitter as blow the mind we're on tumblr as facebook as stuff to blow your mind and uh, where else can they find us well you can 
find us by sending us an email. Yes. And you can do that at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 